Happy February! It's Black History Month, the Winter Olympics in Beijing are kicking off, and the East Coast has gotten hit with two major winter storms in the last week. Coming up on this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over the week's top headlines. Republicans, current-day Republicans, are screaming that the lines that have been drawn, both for Congress and for the legislature, are unfair, are partisan, they are threatening legal action. This week, a Capital Region mother died from what some say was a broken heart. Her death comes nearly a year and a half after her 11-year-old son was fatally shot in Troy. Coming up, we'll remember Aishon Davis and his mother, LaToya Alston. Because I know my sister, I, I honestly feel like she just gave up. And we'll learn about an aspiring historian's quest to connect the Arbor Hill community with one of its largest historical sites. Within the museum world, it is our practice and responsibility to start conversation, discussion, and dialogue. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast, a look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. First up, let's discuss what appeared in the Times Union and on timesunion.com this week. Time to go over the top news of the week with Times Union Editor-in-Chief Casey Seiler. Let's start out with uh, a story that we follow every year at this time, snowstorms that come uh, across our area. We had a big one that was in the news this week. It hasn't happened yet because we're taping on Thursday, but... It illustrates a great point about what we do behind the scenes in the newsroom every time at this year. Do you want to elaborate? What's the the classic line? Everybody cares about the weather, but nobody ever does anything about it. And (laughs) we can't do anything about the weather, but we do quite a lot to sort of follow it. And whenever there is a storm upcoming, you know, we try to let people know. We try to let them know when when the prediction changes, as it often does. You know, there was this monster nor'easter that swept across New England and really all over the Northeast last weekend. And this week we are staring at what's initially going to be rain and then it's supposed to turn to ice and then it's supposed to turn to snow. By the time most people listen to this, hopefully it will be snow. I hope it'll be snow as a skier and somebody who loves it when it snows and hates it when it is cruddy and rainy like this in February. But obviously if folks go to timesunion.com, they can get the latest forecast, and they can also get a very comprehensive and well-done list of school closings and delays, which, since Friday is a weekday, is something that everybody is going to care about. Certainly, certainly. Yes, definitely check that out. Storm Tracker. All right, moving on to political news. There was a whole lot of talk about redistricting this week. Can you lay that all out for us? Yeah, this is kind of the opposite of a snowstorm in that it's uh, long term and it's very hard to understand. Um, Redistricting is, of course, the once every 10 years process. There was reform efforts, so-called, that were put into place about a decade ago that ostensibly handed the job of redistricting, that is redrawing our political lines for Congress and for the state legislature, over to an independent commission. The problem is that the independent commission deadlocked along party lines 
which left um, this work in the hands of legislative majorities, which is now Democrats in both the House and the Senate. Ten years ago, it was Republicans in the Senate and Democrats in the Assembly. Now, of course, Republicans, current day Republicans, are screaming that the lines that have been drawn, both for Congress and for the legislature, are unfair, are partisan. They are threatening legal action. Democrats say, look, this is, this is the system that was in place. We are working with the system that was made in part by uh, Senate Republicans 10 years ago. Uh, and they claim that uh, the lines that they have drawn are fair, that they uh, comport with state law, including newly um, an aspect of the Constitution. That remains to be seen, but obviously this process has to move fairly quickly because primaries have to be um, set up by the end of June. Petitioning has to take place. Candidates need to know in which district they're running. Now, in the Capital Region, some of the biggest news is that the district that Paul Tonka will run in, I should say, will be um, much more urban. It will include Troy, Schenectady, Saratoga Springs, as well as, of course, Albany. And Antonio Delgado, who is um, the congressman from, you know, generally his current district that runs south of here, he will get a bigger chunk of uh, southern Albany County, as well as, uh, as Rensselaer County, including the city of Rensselaer. There are uh, lawmakers, especially in the Senate, who are upset about aspects of these lines. Daphne Jordan and Jim Tedisco have both been very outspoken. Daphne Jordan is going to have to run in a far more Democratic district later this year if these lines stand up. I encourage people to really look at these as interactive maps and find out where their place of residence, um, you know, falls within all of these, all three types of these new districts. And uh, for that, we can thank the good work of an entity called Redistricting in You that's run by the CUNY uh, Graduate Center. They have done just great work compiling all of these interactive maps that allow you to see not just where the lines are, but the kind of demographics involved in in each district. So it's a, a real resource that at the Times Union, we're definitely relying on. Yes, that is a lot of maps over at timesunion.com, be they weather or (laughs) drawings of political districts. So be sure to head over there. All right, something that came down the wires this week that was, you know, reverberated across Twitter and elsewhere, CNN President Jeff Zucker resigned earlier this week. And strangely, or maybe not so strangely, an article that you wrote in 2013 popped up on our one of our lists of most viewed articles. So do you want to tell us about that connection? Yeah, this was back when I was the Capitol Bureau chief. And I wrote about the departure of someone who had come from the world of TV to serve as um, a high-level communications person for uh, then-Governor Cuomo. And that was Alison Gallist. I remember everybody saying, she seems really nice. I wonder how long she's going to last. (laughs) And (laughs) lasted about four months. So make of that what you will to take a job at CNN to work with Jeff Zucker, who she had worked with um, previously at NBC. Now, what was revealed on Wednesday is that Zucker and Gallist had a romantic relationship that uh, Zucker did not disclose, that neither of them disclosed, um, as they should have, according to CNN standards and practices. And as a result of that, Jeff Zucker was stepping down. 
Now, this had been revealed in an investigation conducted at CNN's uh, request by a law firm, and this came in the aftermath of Chris Cuomo, the former governor's brother, getting fired by CNN for his involvement in the kind of uh, war room colloquies that both internal and external Cuomo, Andrew Cuomo advisors made to respond um, to uh, the sexual harassment uh, allegations that were made against him beginning at the very end of 2020 and, of course, continuing um, through 2021 up until the former governor's uh, resignation in August. So honestly, if you were writing uh, a House of Cards episode or a soap opera and you um, included this as a plot point, people would laugh you out of the writer's room. But yes, that is how a uh, eight, nine-year-old story of mine all of a sudden jumped up in the the visit rankings uh, on uh, on Wednesday and into Thursday. Go figure. Well, now that you mentioned it, it's, it's probably sure to end up on, on one of our streaming networks um, in a drama. But that is a nice segue, actually, because the last thing I wanted to talk about today was the fact that the Capital Region is like, you know, almost like the next Hollywood. What's going on here now? A hallmark made-for-TV movie that is set in the 1950s has remade part of Fourth Street, specifically around DeFazio's, which is, you know, this fantastic, great neighborhood Italian market and even more fantastic pizza joint. The production company has been rolling out these just gorgeous, you know, vintage cars from the 1950s. And Jess, I can guarantee you this movie will not include anything about redistricting, nothing about... <laughs> either quashed or um, constrained subpoenas, and almost certainly nothing about Andrew Cuomo. So I think it's something we can all look forward to in holiday season 2022. Absolutely, though. I will. You left one thing off of that list. There's probably not going to be any, you know, handsome, you know, bows in flannel shirts either. That seems to be kind of a theme because this is a period piece in the 1950s. And I don't think they had flannel back then or it wasn't in vogue. Are you are you watching? Are you watching The Gilded Age? I have not seen it yet. It's on my list. Second episode better than the first episode. All right. I'm going to check it out. I'm excited. All right. Thanks, Casey. We'll check back in with you next week. Jess, thanks a lot. As always, you can read more about all of the stories and the issues that we discuss on this podcast at timesunion.com. In September of 2020, tragedy struck in Troy. 11-year-old Aishon Davis was killed in the crossfire of a drive-by shooting on Old 6th Avenue downtown. His family, especially his mother, Latoya Alston, was devastated. This week, Latoya Alston died. She was 38 years old. Though she suffered from a host of medical issues, family and friends say the cause of her death was a broken heart. Times Union Deputy City Desk Editor Lauren Stanforth spoke with Jasmine Alston and Latoya's eldest son, Javon, on the phone this week. They shared memories of Latoya's life, circumstances of her death, and how her death and Aishan's have impacted the family. Just like a lot of people who've, who've dealt with such horrific grief, she was having an incredibly hard time, as anyone would. We learned only in the last couple weeks how truly crushing it was for her. 
when there were actually a couple of TV stations that had seen that she died. There is a gentleman who owns a financial group in Troy, Steve Boucher, who Mm -hmm. has been helping the family ever since Aishan died because they got a lot of donations and Mm -hmm. they had to raise funds for his gravestone. And so he had been volunteering to help them orchestrate how to use this money. And so he had posted on Facebook her passing and he attributed to a broken heart. You know, like everybody get together and go to that one person house. That was Toya and our family. Yeah, I spoke to uh, one of her sisters, Jasmine, and Jasmine told me that LaToya was, you know, a really happy person. The exciting one and always cooking and always having parties and get together. It's like, it was, she was just that person that bring everybody together in his family. But obviously, as one can expect, after Aishan was killed, she had shut down. She just didn't want to do nothing. She didn't even come to, you know, other stuff that we had. And even if you, like, forced her to come, she just sat in the corner. Like, she really wasn't even trying to engage. But Jasmine provided a piece that I I was most curious about, which was what led to her death. Mm-hmm. And Jasmine had said that LaToya had chronic health issues before Aishan died. But she had kidney failure, even though she was a young woman. She was 38 when she, when she died last week. And that her, their mother also has kidney failure. And their other sister has kidney failure. It's a chronic kidney disease, I guess, that runs in her family. Mm-hmm. And so she needed to get dialysis. Of, I don't know how often Jasmine had told me that she had stopped going, which is which is a life-saving treatment you need, obviously, when you have kidney failure. She wasn't doing like the stuff she normally do, like going to dialysis or making sure she was taking her medicine. You can see the decline uh, to where she just gave up. And her her twenty-year-old son. Uh, Javon had backed this up as well, but they, they said that they kept bothering her about, did you go today? Did you make sure you went this week? And she had assured them that she was, but they suspected that she wasn't taking care of herself. And it, it was because she had just fallen into such a, a deep depression, you know, over the death of her 11-year-old son. I don't know how I handle it, to be honest. I just try to think about, I don't even think about me. I just think about my sibling. Javon is 20, her eldest son. I asked him how he was doing, and he said, I really don't know how I'm even doing right now. He's like, I'm just trying to stay busy. They ha- she has four kids, and um, Javon, 20, who's age 20, lives on his own, has a full-time job, and he says he wants to just focus on his siblings and helping them through it. So he's a really incredible young man. This wasn't immediately in the story, but I also talked to LaToya's partner. Um, his name's Terrence Davis, and that was mm-hmm. Aishan's father. You know, he expressed how despondent he is. He said he wakes up and cries every morning about Aishan. He can't imagine what LaToya was going through. He said he feels like he's leaning on his children and that they're stronger than him right now. So obviously he's, he's really in despair right now as well. 
tell us a little bit about uh, the circumstances of the man who had been arrested in the shooting of Aishan. Uh, what's the latest there? A 20-year-old man from Cohoes was charged with second-degree murder, murder in Aishan's death. I mean, only about 10 days after the shooting. It, w- it was pretty quick when uh, he was found and charged. September 13th, 2020 is when Aishan was shot and killed. Around September 23rd is when this man from Cohoes was arrested. So it was it was a pretty quick charge in terms of the case. But now it's February 2022, and there's been no change in the case. There, I don't believe there's been any other arrests, even though police had said at the time they believe there were other people in the car which where the shots were fired, and they thought maybe there would be other arrests. I don't believe there have been. The uh, person who's been charged, uh, Jacque Brown is his name, has been in the Rensselaer County Jail this entire time, and there has been no change in the case. Um, apparently, um, defense has filed a lot of motions, and, and as we know, the pandemic really delayed court proceedings. So, Has there been any explanation for why it's taken so long? No. Uh, apparently, um, the Rensselaer County Day's office updated our editor, Mike Goodwin, for me because he, he was helping with this story, and they had said the defense has just put in a lot of motions to ask for things, and you know, the prosecution has had to answer those motions. So they said that's part of the reason why the delay. When I talked to Terrence Davis, Aishan's father and Latoya's partner, he did mention that the the case dragging on and having no resolution also weighed on Latoya as well. Why do you think it's important as a reporter and editor to tell these these stories? It's the true ravages of gun violence, which is interesting. I actually asked Latoya's sister and son, do you want to talk about that? And they really didn't have much to say. I think because they're just dealing with their own crushing grief. You know, having outside thoughts about a systemic neighborhood issue is just is not fore of mind for them. You know, I mean, totally sure. understandable. Um I think it's so important to connect with them and that it's not just some crime statistic about a city. These are people just like everyone else experiencing this horrific grief. And you need to know that it's it's not just a gun statistic. These are real people. I don't know. I can't even put how I felt about anything into words. Like, I don't know. That was my sister. That was my protector. She was the mother to us before my mother was a mother to us. The family of Latoya Alston has set up a GoFundMe to assist in funeral expenses. Visit timesunion.com for more. After the break, a young historian aims to connect her Albany neighborhood with one of its biggest historical sites. Hi, I'm Casey Seiler, editor of the Times Union. Join us for an ongoing discussion on major developments in the saga of Keith Raniere, co-founder of Nexium, the shadowy upstate New York organization at the center of the explosive federal investigation that resulted in Ranieri's conviction on charges of extortion, sex trafficking, and more. 
We talk to former members of Nexium, discuss the latest news, and preview the likely next twists in this bizarre and disturbing story. You can find Nexium on trial at timesunion.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. High upon Arbor Hill, just to the north of downtown Albany, sits a stately 300-year-old federal-style house. Its light brick exterior is adorned with elegant columns that bear the hallmarks of the Greek revival of architecture popular in the early to mid-1800s. It's surrounded by a formal garden that explodes with color every spring and summer. In the late 1700s, the property was the home of Revolutionary War commander and politician Abraham Tenbrook. In the mid-1800s, it belonged to the Olcotts, a family of white bankers. Today, Tenbrook Mansion is the headquarters of the Albany County Historical Association. Its gardens are open to the public from dawn till dusk daily, and the house is a museum and function space. The Arbor Hill neighborhood that surrounds the mansion is one of Albany's most historic districts. In the 1700s and 1800s, it was home to a diversity of residents, notably a community of free persons of color. They were silversmiths, cabinet makers, and porters. Today, Arbor Hill is a predominantly black neighborhood, and it's also one of the city's poorest, hit hard by redlining in the 1930s and 40s. The Albany County Historical Association has made it a mission to tell the stories of the enslaved persons who lived and worked on the property during the Tenbrook era, as well as those of the free black Americans who were employed there during the Olcott's residency. But many of Arbor Hill's current residents are disconnected from this historical site. They either don't know much about it, or view it as a shrine to wealthy white families who owned enslaved persons. An aspiring young black historian is looking to change that perception. Diana Bowles is a fellow for the Mid-Atlantic Arts Foundation and a former intern at Tenbrook Mansion. She grew up in Arbor Hill, passing by the mansion on a near daily basis. Bowles says she wants to connect the residents of Arbor Hill to Tenbrook and other historical sites in the neighborhood in hopes that they will become places of positive community engagement and connection. Times Union reporter Masara Makati recently had a chance to talk with Bowles about her research and her efforts to bring the community to the table at Tenbrook. Here's some of their conversation. Actually, I want to backtrack a little bit more and get to know a little bit better why you were interested in the art world and in history in the first place. This has been a um, lifelong interest um, ever since I was um, young. My father serving um, in the U.S. Air Force, he was a big history buff, very um, patriotic. Um, despite being a black man who was oppressed by um, America, and then my mother being an Albany native. Um, when she speaks of the city of Albany, it's like done with pride and dignity. And it's something that helped me develop an interest. It's like, okay, yes, Albany is a, um, a great city. 
is somewhere where I do want to help contribute towards my community and build my career and live my life. At. Um, as far as joining like the art and museum history role, um, I've always seen museums as spaces of social occasion, as well as um, a place that promotes experience and learning. Um, within the museum world, it is our practice and responsibility to start conversation, discussion, and dialogue. Although talking itself is not objective, everyone's questions, opinions, and ideas are respected in this space. I've always viewed conversation, as you mentioned, um, the fact that Timbrook is situated in Arbor Hill, and this is a predominantly um, Black area, um, conversation should not be from point A to point B, but rather like a moving freely back and forth across the circle, creating like a web of connections among the participants, which will be the community. Let's get into your research project, right? So tell me more about your project. What was it? Why did you decide to do this research project? And what did you find throughout your research? Um, me and Catherine um, both had a goal of um, improving like our community outreach. We set like a, um, a target goal of, okay, at least 10 people. If I could get more, <laughs> that would be um, ideal, but we just needed like a, a decent like pool of um, community um, residents to get like um, proper um, feedback. So for about two months in the month of September and October, I reached out to like uh, various individuals. I, I know that reside in the Arbor Hill, West Hill um, community. Um, it was a little bit of a hit and a miss for me, um, to be honest, because I did face some slight opposition as if like I'm a token, um, a, a black token for a white institution. And then that I was out doing their bidding, like, oh, like, why are they sending you? Like you're the why well, they're using a black person, why they couldn't send a white person out here to talk to us. So I expected that. Um, I did not let that deter me from actually continuing um, trying to get more survey participants. Um, but that was actually like very eye-opening um, for me to see that the perception of Tenbrook Mansion and Albany County Historical Association is a place that excludes the community. Surprisingly, yes. What did the research consist of? You know, what were the questions that you asked them? Did you have them do any activities? Like, can you just paint a picture for me of what you did? Through my um, affiliations and associations, like um, throughout like the neighborhood, my community work, I just sought out um, certain um, individuals. Um, my method of um, collecting their survey um, answers range from text messages, me often going in person, <laughs> to actually try to solicit um, um, responses um, for my survey. Um, the five questions that I uh, proposed to the survey participants who are willing to actually take it. Um, first question was, have you ever visited the Timbrook Mansion? What have you heard about Timbrook Mansion? Do you know about the history of Timbrook Mansion? Do you feel Timbrook mansion contributes to the surrounding community. And the final question was, what service or activity should Timbrook Mansion provide to the neighborhood residents? Yes. Those are great questions. Feedbacks, um, as I wrote in my report and I shared with Catherine, this turned out to be what I called like dismal results. Majority of the responses to my question was no, no, or the um, participant was just not well-informed 
about the work of Timbrook or even like the presence of Timbrook being in Arbor Hill. Did that surprise you? Yeah, it did surprise me. I, I guess I just kind of like sort of assumed maybe because like I'm, I'm a history buff myself that people at least know what Timbrook was given that there are other historical sites um, within the Arbor Hill community as well. I would love to hear actually your take on some of these questions. Like, you know, if you knew of Tenbrook, what you knew about Tenbrook while you were growing up in Arbor Hill? From my parlor knowledge of um, Tenbrook growing up is that, fortunately, yeah, the reputation of it being a haunted house. And it just, I was just viewed at it as like the house on the hill. You know, <laughs> as I got older, I learned more about um, its history and that helped change my perception of it. Um, although uh, admittedly, I was still not a fan that um, enslaved people was on that property. I did consider the grounds to be beautiful and appreciate that fact that there is not a, um, a price of admission to actually walk on the properties and so. I guess if I were to summarize the r- results of your survey, it would just be like, What's the relationship that people of color have to the mansion right now? Correct. Non-existent for the most part. Yeah. I, yeah. Is that harsh? Yeah. I mean, I don't Unfortunately, know. Unfortunately, yeah, I, I, w- I would definitely say so. One, one thing um, that I'm happy and excited for, like the fact that um, Catherine right now is in like the, the planning and development place of the community center is that once that is completed, that will be a like a destination for the Arbor Hill community because we're in a few food desert. I, I live here. We're in a food desert. We really don't have that many normal community resources. We only have one gas station here. It's, we're glad Capital Rep is down at the bottom of the hill, um, but that that ties a little bit more and integrates in towards like downtown Albany, but we've always felt overlooked and there has been a lack of investment, honestly. Yeah, so the community center is a great solution for the historic disinvestment in the neighborhood and also for bridging the gap between the institution and the community where it's situated, right? Correct, yes. Why do you believe that it's important in the first place to engage the community and to engage people of color in Tenbrook Mansion's history and activities? And how do you think that speaks to the larger picture also of um, engagement with history and these historic sites? Museums really do play a, um, a social influence role in society overall. Where else can you like facilitate besides outside of like you know, a college campus or a, um, a, a school building where you can have like a dialogue of, of different opinions and such. And American history is, is not pretty. It was not always red, white, and blue. It was red, white, and black. Native Americans, Europeans, and, 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 and enslaved um, Africans. I'm proud to be American. I do believe that um, me being a, um, a resident of um, Albany, New York, I can at least help contribute towards like the, the positives of um, American history, even here in my small little niche as well. 
All right, that's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram, or head over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. The Eagle is a production of the Times Union. It's produced and edited by me, Jessica Marshall, with help from the Times Union digital team and the newsroom. Special thanks this week to Casey Seiler, Lauren Stanforth, and Masara Makati for their contributions to this episode.